we open God's Word together again this morning, then I want to invite you to turn back with me to Ephesians chapter 6, where we were last week. Um, you'll, if you were with us last week, you'll remember that I mentioned then this would be a two-part message, uh, both focusing on the same idea of how do we pray for our church, our local church. And um, we'll read from Ephesians 16, verses 18 to 20 in just a moment. Um, again, I'll remind you too, this is, this is what we would call a topical sermon, which is to say that not every aspect of the outline that's before you is lifted straight out of the text, but, uh, but that it, it gives us an opportunity by, by inviting diverse texts to speak to the same topic to, uh, to focus on particular topics um, such as those that we are working with today. So in light of that, then there will be a number of different passages that I mentioned, some of which I've already heard read, some of which uh, I will read parts of this morning, um, and they'll be from all over the place, not just from Ephesians. So you're welcome to turn uh, to those with me, uh, or you can just listen as I read them aloud. But all of, the, all of the references that I'll make are provided for you in the folders there, so um, in the outline. So as we turn to Ephesians, let's pray uh, for God to open our eyes to his word. Gracious God and Father, thank you for this moment you have given us now to open your word together, to consider it, to hear it read and taught. Um, we pray, Lord, that as we do this, that you would give us the faith to believe that you are speaking to us, and that it's not merely the words of men or of an ancient text that we hear uh, read and taught now, but in fact, the very word of God, that you are alive, that you are with us, that you are speaking to us now. Lord, help us in our belief of that, strengthen us in our unbelief, and give us the, the uh, eyes to see and the ears to hear what you would say to us. For we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. Ephesians chapter 6, and again, verses 18 to 20. This is picking up in mid-sentence. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. To that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints and also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. This is God's word. It's absolutely true and it's given to us in love. Just a quick recap from last week. We began to consider this topic together. How do we pray for our local church? Um, realizing that we should be praying for our church. We know that. We, many of us want to be praying for our, our church. Uh, but maybe we're just starting to learn how we pray for our church. Or we're struggling to know what exactly we might be praying about. And so my goal last week and again this week was to look at some of the ways that we might be in prayer for our collective body, for our local church. Uh, and last week we looked at praying for the work of the church, specifically those things which are called sometimes the marks of the church, the word, the sacraments, and discipline. 
And we also looked at praying for the people of the church, for one another, for our body together. Uh, specifically, praying for spiritual growth and for reconciliation and for fellowship. Because we, we must be praying for the church. We must pray for our local church. And as Ephesians 6.18 uh, through 20 reminds us, to keep on praying for the church, then we want to consider that continuing on today. Um, as with last week, I'll, I'll point, point you to some verses that can fortify you uh, for that, maybe give you some richer understanding of that, some of which you might want to just decide to uh, maybe use during devotional time at another time. Uh, we won't go over them all exhaustively. But I have two more points for this week. In addition to what we talked about last week, praying for the work of the church and praying for the people of the church, I also want us to consider today how we might pray for the health of the church and for the leadership of the church. So let's look together at how we might pray for the health of the church. Because a church can't survive and thrive if it's not healthy. But on the other hand, we know that healthy things grow and thrive, right? And so there are four ways that we can pray for the health of the church. For our unity, for conversion of the unconverted, for revival and revitalization and renewal, and for those who are suffering or who mourn or who are persecuted in the church. So those four things are what I want us to focus on for this first point. Uh, first, let's look at the unity of the body. In John chapter 17, uh, then we have recorded for us uh, what has been called Jesus' high priestly prayer. That is to say, it is his prayer as our ultimate high priest, interceding for us and on our behalf. And this was prayed in the moments before he was arrested, right before he would be taken away to be persecuted and, and beaten and then hung on the cross to die for our sins. Right before then, what was it that Jesus would pray for? What, what was his focus? If we look at John chapter 17, we, in verses 22 and 23, we see a glimpse of this. He didn't only want us to love one another, as we talked about last week, some uh, from, uh, from his urgings in that, what we call the farewell discourse, but we also see that he wanted us to be fully unified. John chapter 17, verses 22 and 23 says this, The glory that you have given to me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I and them, and you and me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Think about that, y'all. Even as Christ was preparing to die, He was praying for us and praying that we would be unified, praying that we would be one as He and the Father are one. That is as unified as it gets, isn't it? That our unity, in fact, would be perfect, He says in verse 23. Now, this is so challenging because obviously it's dependent on everything that we've been praying for so far in, in last week's ideas about the, how the work of the church is ongoing in our lives, that we are being matured and, and grown up in Him. Our spiritual growth is bearing fruit in our lives, that we are finding, um, we're finding reconciliation with one another, and that that reconciliation is lending to fellowship with one another. And then that eventually matriculates into this, what we're talking about here, that we would be unified. 
But if we're tracking through this, then we see that uh, this is another one of those times where what we what we're called on to do, what we hope for, what we're praying for, is impossible apart from the work of the Lord. This goes to a, an entirely new level. But Jesus would not have prayed for this for us if he did not intended to see it fulfilled. Jesus would not have prayed vain prayers. But he prayed that we would be one and united. And so how would we pray for that? Well, let's pray that our hearts would be broken of the pride that keeps us from being one with one another. And that we would be transformed in humility and also in confidence to love one another better. Let's pray that he would minister his grace to us and to our brothers and sisters, that we might be unified that way. And then let's confess that we've allowed division to define us. Rather than love, rather than unity, we've been defined by our divisions, haven't we? I remember uh, just a few weeks ago, right after the uh, General Assembly of our denomination, at the same time, uh, another Presbyterian denomination had their General Assembly. And um, in contrast to some of our core values as a denomination and as Christians, that other Presbyterian denomination uh, took some steps and adopted some measures that were quite different, let's say. I won't go into details. Uh, and what they said was acceptable. And one of the things that stood out to me in that moment was how quickly we were clamoring to say, oh, no, 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 we're not that Presbyterian. We're this kind of Presbyterian. But you know what folks that are not Presbyterians at all see? They see us fighting. That's all they see. They don't care how quick we are to distinguish ourselves They just see that we're fighting. The people that don't know Christ, the people that have no idea what it means to be Presbyterian, all they see when they look at the church is Presbyterians fighting, is Roman Catholics abusing, or whatever the generalizations are, right? They don't see distinctions. They see us. They see the church, and they see fighting, and they see abuse, and they see neglect, And they see all the things that our division has sown among us. And we're so quick to define ourselves by our division. Now, as one of my friends said, we've got to admit that our history brings us to that point. Because let's face it, Protestantism is based upon the premise of having one foot out the door. But, shouldn't we be trying to undo that? Shouldn't we be seeking unity? Shouldn't we be longing to see Christ's prayer fulfilled? And so let's bring ourselves to confession, saying... Lord, we have defined ourselves by our division, and we must stop it. We confess that sin to you. And pray that the church worldwide would be brokenhearted about our division, and that we would seek unity. At Dove Mountain, we had uh, one of our members who still considered themselves to be Roman Catholic, even though they were also a member of our Presbyterian church. And they came to me and said, is that okay? You know, is that going to get me in trouble? You know, does it bother you? And I said, look, I can't wait till we're all one again. Let's just long for that unity. 
And let's let the divisions sort themselves out. It's not to say we stand for nothing. It's not to say that we give ourselves to compromise. It's to say that we don't let that be what defines us. Let's pray for that. Let's pray for the unity of the church. Because a church that doesn't look like that, that people look on and they don't see fighting and they don't see disunity and they don't see division, but instead they see love and they see fellowship and they see unity. Even as we talked about last week, what happens when they see that? They want part of that. And so we might then begin to pray for conversion of the unconverted and believe that it might actually happen in our midst. That's what brings conversion, is when people are not about things other than loving and loving one another and loving our enemies. In Acts chapter 2, we see a picture of this as this kind of love and unity takes root in the midst of the church, as Jesus said that it would, as the outside, those outside of the church uh, or those within the church who had long been a part of it but had never gotten converted, as they uh, began to see and hear this, then what, what happened? The Holy Spirit began to get grip on their hearts. Listen to Acts chapter 2, verses 37 to 41. Now, when they had heard this, they were cut to the heart. Let me qualify before we even go any further. The they that Luke is referring to there are people who were Jewish. They were religious folks. They had come to Jerusalem from all over the world to celebrate the Pentecost season, which was a Jewish holiday. And they heard Peter preaching the gospel, saying to them, you thought this is what your Judaism meant, but let me tell you that this is what your Judaism really was pointing to. And he showed them Jesus. So when they heard that, Luke says, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. And so those who received his word were baptized. And they were added that day about 3,000 souls. We want believers, unbelievers to come to faith, don't we? We want those outside of the church to come to faith. Even the most uh, taken up of us with the divisions, even those of us who love the debate the most, still would confess and admit, look, what we long for the most, what we need the most, is to see unbelievers converted. This only happens, though, when the Holy Spirit is at work moving through the proclamation of His Word to the lost. It doesn't happen because we've contrived it. It doesn't happen because we've learned the most effective methods. It doesn't happen because we've got the most glamorous programs. It happens because the Holy Spirit brings folks to himself. And what that means is that even the humblest of circumstances can be one in which the Holy Spirit works. It doesn't take uh, an elaborate facility or, or extensive programs for every age and stage, 
or whatever it is that some churches would say, this is what's going to reach the lost of our generation. That has not borne out historically as why people come to faith. And so I say that as an encouragement to you, Desert Springs, a church that has long sat in this part of the world and longed to see people come to faith. God is using you. God does use you. And he can use you for that end. Let's not compare ourselves to other churches and say, well, if only we had that, or if only we were like them, or if only we could do those things. Instead, let's get on our knees and pray that God would bring conversion to the lost, that God would open up opportunities for us to befriend those who we know outside of the church, maybe their neighbors, maybe their co-workers, Maybe they're the guy that we see every time I go to the gym and he happens to be two treadmills over from me or whatever. Right? There are those folks that you have regular contact with. There's opportunities for you to befriend them. Who knows if they're believers or not? It doesn't matter. The Lord said, love your neighbor, and those are your neighbors. So let's pray that God would give us opportunity to love our neighbors. And that we and the other, others in our congregation would become bringers, those who are quick to invite those that we know to church. And I know that's intimidating, and I know that one of the things that stands in our way of doing that is the fear that we will be rejected. But then on the other hand, I also know what we talked about last week, that, that is when our congregation is as loving and as truly reconciled and as fellowship-having as the church is called to be, as we might begin to pray that we could be, then those neighbors are going to recognize that there's something that we have that they don't. And that invitation will not be so fearsome because they will want to be part of that. They will want to get their hands on what we've got. It won't be that hard. And that we would then begin to bring our neighbors and our co-workers and others so that they can hear the word preached. Y'all, it can be just that simple. You know, evangelism can be just that simple. Hey, would you like to come to church with us this Sunday? Would you like to come to this event? Come to this small group. Let me invite you to this. And then just let the Word do its work. Because it's through the Holy Spirit working through, as we confessed in our confession of faith earlier, through the ordinary means of salvation, which is to say, through the Word preached, that he brings them to himself. And then that our congregation would be hospitable to the lost, that we would have that kind of body that people long to be included in. And that those who God has called to be evangelists, because he has gifted some of us as evangelists, you know. Not Not all of us, but some of us are set apart for that purpose, that those who he has called would fulfill their calling with boldness and confidence and faithfulness to the Word. Those are some ways that we can be praying for the lost. Those aren't hard ways, are they? When those kinds of things happen, when the unity of the church is renewed, when our love for one another begins to take place in, in breaking, groundbreaking ways, when those who are unconverted start to get converted, then something amazing happens. 
we tend to think of this word revival as being something that happens when, you know, a big tent is pitched and sawdust is put down, and we've scheduled this event for a week long, right? Come to our revival. You know that's a less than 100-year-old concept of what revival means? A guy named Billy Sunday and folks like him started that myth of what revival really looks like. What revival really happens is what Isaiah was challenging and praying for in Isaiah 45, where, which Mike read earlier, that in the midst of a broken and challenged context, when even oppression is taking place, what would happen? In verse 8, that God would shower from above righteousness, and that the earth would open and salvation and righteousness would bear fruit. So let me tell you what that looks like. It looks like, starting with us, not that we've invited all this crowd to come to our big tent, but it starts with me and with you beginning to have something stirring in our hearts. Tim Keller defined revival this way. He said, when, when revival breaks out through a recovery of the gospel, three things happen. Nominal church members realize they've never been converted. Sleepy, lethargic Christians are energized and renewed. And outsider non-Christians are attracted into the beautiful worship, community, and lives of the converted and renewed church members. That starts here. Maybe there's some of us here today. Maybe you've been coming to church all your life. Maybe you've been coming to Desert Springs for years. Maybe you've been a member of the church for as long as you can remember but you've never gotten converted. You know that happens. The, the guy that pastors the church that I served in Tennessee before moving out here was telling me just a couple of weeks ago about a man that I knew that had been a member of that church for decades. A regular part of that community. And he came to Doug one Sunday and he said, you know, all these years, I thought I was a Christian. But this morning, when you preached this from, you, from God's Word, and you said, this is what it means to receive salvation, I realized I had never received salvation in Christ. And I could never have before had the assurance that if I died, that I knew what was going to happen. But today I do. And do you hear what just happened with that? It wasn't some elaborate, fancy thing. Doug was preaching God's word on a regular Sunday, not a scheduled revival Sunday. And somebody in the church who thought they were a believer realized they weren't. And they came to faith. And when that starts to happen, not just one or two people here and there, but pew by pew, we all are reawakened, reinvigorated, revitalized. That's when revival happens. Now, Sometimes we wonder, well, does our church really need revitalization? Do we really need that kind of renewal? I went to a conference by a guy named Harry Reeder, who's written a book on church revitalization, and he was telling the conference about how uh, even church planters have started coming to attend this conference because 
he said, you know, they, we figured out that after about six months, any group that's been meeting together is revital, it needs revitalization in some area. There's no church that, has, that is too young to need revitalization, no church that is too healthy to need revitalization. We all need it because we're all broken. So let's pray for revival and for revitalization and renewal, that God would give us an honest awareness of our vulnerability for unhealthy church life, and that he would give us vigilance in our care and prayerfulness against those unhealthy things, that our congregation would always keep the gospel central and never be satisfied that it has been preached enough, that God would bring true revival in our congregation, in our community, our denomination, our country, and our world. Now I want to encourage you. Uh, we've been worshiping here now for almost a year, and I've never once gotten the idea that any of your leaders have ever wondered whether they have preached the gospel enough. You should be encouraged by that. But you should also pray that that would continue because it can be so tempting. It can be so easy to believe that it's time to move on to other things. We always need the gospel. And then finally, for the, uh, for the health of the church, then we might be praying for the suffering and the mourning and the persecuted among us. Now, it might have seemed like that would have been most natural to, to talk about under the people of the church. Because those are part of us. There's no, no sense in which the people of the church might be absent from that group or the, those, those folks might be absent from the rest of us. But when we look at Jesus' words, then we see how properly it fits under the health of the church. In John 16, he said this in verse 33, I have said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, for I have overcome the world. Jesus never misleads us to believe that a healthy church is a trouble-free place. Or that healthy Christians are those who don't face struggles. Rather, the health of the church resides exactly in realizing that we will have struggles and that Jesus has overcome those struggles. So let me say this unequivocally, because some of you, I know, need to hear this. Some of you have been told that your struggles, or the troubles that you've had, or the reasons why you are right now in mourning, are because simply of your sin. And that if you just repented enough, you wouldn't have those anymore. Beloved, that is a lie. And Jesus' words in John 16 declares exactly how much that is a lie. He said, you will have troubles. He said that to his apostles. There wasn't anybody in that group that didn't have assurance of salvation. If you're struggling, that is normal. That is okay. Sometimes our struggles are a result of sin. Sometimes it's a result of our own sin. Sometimes it's because we've been sinned against. 
But it is not the litmus test for whether or not we have salvation. It is not the, the measure of our spiritual maturity. In my experience, it is the most spiritually mature who often receive the most struggle. So, praying for the health of the church means praying for those among us who struggle. Those who mourn. Those who face persecution. Those who hurt. So how do we pray for these? We pray that God would use all suffering to a glorified end. That He would comfort those who struggle. That their struggles are not in vain. That those who are hurting would have those who are not hurting able to be present in their lives. That they would be able to be alongside them in a faithful way. That we would be attentive to their pain and their hurt. That we would be able to sit with them in the ashes and know where they are. And that the leadership of our church would be prepared to shepherd and care for those in pain, maybe with an increased capacity for burden-bearing, in those moments and that those who face persecution would persevere and that their suffering would serve as a witness to the gospel because our congregation is built up through prayer for the health of the church through unity in the body that seeks to be known for our love for one another through conversion of the unconverted who long to become part of our body because they see that what they are missing can be found here. Through revival and revitalization and renewal that come when we see ourselves as the ones who are most in need of the gospel and through sustenance of those who are suffering and are hurting. Finally, we also would pray for the leadership of the church. We'd pray for the pastor or pastors in some, some churches' cases. If you if you happen to move from here and go on and want to pray for your other church, don't just pray for the senior pastor. Pray for all of those who are in ministry staff. For the officers. And above all, for God's glory. Because after all, the head and king of the church is Christ himself. So we pray for that to be a part of our leadership as well. So let's look first at how we pray for the pastor. In Second Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, Paul wrote these things. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord might speed ahead and be honored as happened among you, and that we would be delivered from wicked and evil men, for not all have faith. Y'all, pastors need your prayer. And you know that. I know you know that because I've been among you for almost a year now, regularly, and I know how faithfully you love your pastor. Thank you for that. Uh, I'm in a unique position to be able to speak as a pastor, but not as your pastor. And I can say, it is a treasure that you love Steve and his family the way you do. And I thank you for it. And as a fellow pastor, I'm honored by your care for him. And I know that you love him. And I want to encourage you to continue to love him and to pray for him as part of that love. If it was true for Paul that he called for prayer, then it's true for any pastor, I promise. That any of us who would serve as many ministers of the gospel. So Paul gives a little bit of insight into how we might be praying for pastors. That the word of the Lord might speed ahead and be honored. 
That's one key way that you could be regularly praying for your pastor. You don't know, most of you at least, the number of hours that goes into the study to prepare for a sermon like Steve does, week by week. And the amount of thought, it becomes this consuming thing that even as he's at home watching the ball game or grilling or whatever, it's in the back of his mind, turning over. He's thinking about it. He's praying about it. Pray for them through the week. That God would give him clarity. Pray for him on Sunday mornings that God would give him confidence and boldness and yet humility. You might pray, as I have prayed for him, that, in the words of John the Baptist, that he might decrease, that Christ would increase. And then pray for him after his sermons. Because one thing you may not know, even if you've been in leadership in a church, is that a pastor is very vulnerable after he's preached. The accuser is whispering lies in his ears, telling him that he misspoke, or that nobody was listening, or that he's not a very effective preacher anyway, or that uh, he, he said something that turned someone in the wrong direction instead of the way that he hoped that they would, or one of a thousand other lies. And it's so easy to believe those lies. So pray for him, that the word would be honored and might speed ahead of him in each of those ways. And then the other part that Paul recommends there, that, that the pastor would be delivered from wickedness and evil because not all have faith. Isn't that a great, a gentle way to say not everybody is thinking on the same page in the church? And we know that's true. And sometimes that manifests into wickedness because we're all wicked toward one another at times. Sometimes pastors are the recipients of wickedness more than others. So pray for your pastor that God would give him the capacity to stand up and be delivered from that. I know some of you know some of those circumstances well, and others of you are blissfully protected from them, but trust that they happen, where Steve has been under attack from some outside the church and from some within the church. Pray for him. Pray for the officers also. I love that passage that Mike read to us from Acts chapter 20 where Paul gathering with what seems to have been his most beloved church plant, the church in Ephesus. And he, he feared that this would be the last time he would ever have an opportunity to see these elders again. And so he called for them and they came a distance to visit him because he couldn't go all the way to them. And when they got together, then he exhorted them and he said, look, keep watch over the flock, because some, even within your midst, are going to rise up like wolves and seek to devour the sheep. And so he had reasons to be concerned, that they would pay careful attention to the flock, that they themselves would be alert for those false teachers and wolves, and that they would stand firmly on God's word. And those are ways that we can pray for our elders, not just Paul praying for the Ephesian elders, but all of us praying for all of our elders and and other officers that Christ would prepare them to lead effectively, to lead with humility and wisdom, that they would be faithful in their callings, that they would be diligent in their work and healthy in their spiritual lives, that God would continue to raise up new leaders to be trained and to share in their work 
that they wouldn't have to bear these burdens alone or, or with small numbers. Pray for your elders. I've seen a lot of sessions in my ministry years. And you have a good one. You have a good session here. You have good elders who are worthy of the honor that you give them. And thank you for that. Thank you for honoring them. I pray that God would continue to honor your church with elders that carry on in the way that these elders do. Esteem them with prayer regularly, y'all. Pray for your elders. And finally, we might pray for God's glory and for Christ's return. Because after all, the head of the church is our Lord Jesus. And how did he encourage us to pray? Well, when the disciples came to him in Luke chapter 11, we read, Now Jesus was praying in a certain place, and when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray, as John taught his disciples. And so he said to them, When you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. That was his lead. Be glorified, God, and come quickly, Lord Jesus. Aren't those two wonderful things to be praying for the sake of our church? Because if we don't recognize intuitively how much those are for the sake of our local church, then maybe with just a little bit of thought we would see everything we are doing is for those two things. It is for God's glory, and it is leaning toward that hope and anticipation of Christ's return. Jesus knew that a struggle in the church would be always to take our eyes off of these things that it would be to lay our affections on things other than the gospel. And that's why in Calvin, uh, Calvin's Institutes that he wrote that man's nature, so to speak, is a perpetual factory of idols. If you know yourself, you know that's true. Our hearts are always distracted by things that want our affections in the way that only Christ is due affection. So we should pray for the church according to how Jesus taught us to pray. That God's glory would increase and that our glory would decrease. That we would be empowered to bring glory to God through our service and through all that we do. That our congregation and especially our leaders would model both the longing and anticipation of Christ's return. And that Jesus would come. Jack and I were just talking yesterday about how one of his one of his concerns already in life is that one day mommy and daddy will die. But he's praying that Jesus will return before then. Isn't that wonderful? That's just, that just moves my heart because there's someone who has their eye on what's right. We don't have to just settle for the brokenness of our world. We can long for more than that. So let's do that together in prayer. Let's long for Christ to return because our leaders are empowered for greater service through our prayer for them in the church, through the protection and effectiveness of our pastors, through the diligence and preparation of our elders, and through our constant pursuit of God's glory and anticipation of his return. Now, in, in churches that I've served, I've often been asked by people, what can I do? Maybe you've asked that question. Sometimes they qualify it. I'm not assuming that you've qualified it these ways, but sometimes I'll hear, I don't feel like I'm able to serve in these ways that seem to be really needed. Or, 
I'm not as good at those things. Or I often feel just useless to my church. What can I do to serve? And I always say, you can pray. You can pray. And sometimes, you know this temptation, do you? I know it. It's so easy to brush that aside. Yeah, but what can I really do? Right? I've said that. I know I can pray, but I really want to help. What can I, what can I do for you? Also, in every congregation that I've served, there's been someone, or sometimes more than one, who was that foundation of prayer for us. Invariably, they were someone who was older and had grown infirm. Maybe they were physically unable to do what they were used to doing in service to the local church, but they knew they can pray. And pray they did, faithfully, day by day, and sometimes hour by hour. Beloved, don't let those prayer warriors that are in your midst be the only ones that are praying for your church. If we think back again to Ephesians 18, or 618, remember what Paul said, keep on praying for all the saints. He's assuming, like I do, that we already have a longing, a desire, maybe even a practice of prayer for our church. So my goal hasn't been to convince you that that's needed. Rather, I want to help you see that in our prayers for the work of the church, then our lives are reoriented to one another. And in our prayers for the people of the church, our hearts are brought into greater love for one another. And in our prayers for the health of the church, our congregation is built up. And in our prayers for the leadership of the church, then our leaders are empowered for greater service. And who doesn't want those things? We all do, don't we? So let's pray for them. Would you pray now with me? Heavenly Father, we long to be people who are more faithful to pray. So give us a belief that you hear our prayers and a trust that you are at work in and through them. We know that we are dependent on you in ways we don't even recognize. Help us to know and recognize our dependence on you in prayer. And make us into people who pray with expectation and anticipation for how you will answer our prayers. And make us into people who pray for our church. For we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.